I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Today, we're doing something different. Welcome to our summer book club, where we're going to discuss what we think makes a great American novel. I won't say the great American novel, because when I first suggested that, there was such a riot on the email chain that that was even an idea, even a thing we could possibly solve that I decided against it. But a great American novel. And the way this is going to work is that I asked Charlotte, Howard, and Idris Kaloon and John Fasman to each pick one great American novel that they wanted to discuss on the podcast. If you haven't finished reading the books that we're talking about, I'm afraid, spoiler alerts, we will talk about the endings. And so if you mind that, then you can always listen to the episode when you're done. And we're going to go in chronological order. So the novel that was published first goes first. And that novel was Charlotte's Pick, The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton, which was published in 1920, but set in Gilded Age New York, so in the 1870s. Charlotte, to begin with, would you begin by just telling us a little bit about this book, what happens in it? The Age of Innocence is about a man named Newland Archer, who is preparing to marry May Welland, and Archer falls in love with her cousin. And it's a novel about social structures and about change, but I like it in particular because it's a novel about agency, and many books talk about action, particularly American novels talk about action, and this is really about a lack of it. So the novel begins at a point when you know that New York is in transition. So right in the second paragraph, you have a description of the quote-unquote new people whom New York was beginning to dread and yet be drawn to. And there's evidence of change that's sprinkled throughout. So in a discussion of politics later, you have nods to people of action and a sense that the older guard is increasingly useless. So America was in possession of the bosses and the immigrant and decent people had to fall back on sport or culture. And this is a novel, though, about that older guard in New York and and the turmoil of Newland within it. So The Age of Innocence begins with these really overly detailed descriptions of different families. You have the Mingots and the Vanderleidens, and it feels almost oppressive and suffocating on purpose. And people often communicate through looks and glances rather than actual words, in part because the conventions are so clear that you don't have to say things out loud. And in this context, Newland is someone who's already predisposed to internal life. And so we learn early on that thinking over a pleasure to come often gave him a subtler satisfaction than its realization. And so he's someone who is both comfortable in this world and likes to think about things rather than merely act. But he also is increasingly restive. He's struck by the elaborate futility of his life, and he feels the green mold of the perfunctory spreading. And so into this world, you have Countess Lenska, who's the cousin of his fiancée, May, and she evokes something really different. You have Wharton describe her through Newland's eyes as presenting possibilities outside the daily run of experience. And this attraction to her has the effect of bringing almost an internal riot within him. People are always blushing in this book. They have uh, a reaction that comes in spite of themselves. And Newland has his insides, his heart beats insubordinately and things like that. And he gets to a point where he's really struggling to identify what is reality, what is his real life. Is it May, which is his external reality, or is it this more internal, imaginative obsession with Alenska? 
And there's this sense that it's not clear which version of reality is more vivid, his external or his internal life. But Archer doesn't run away with Olenska, not because he chooses not to, but because the people around him arrange for her to go back to Europe. And he sometimes toys with the idea of following her, but never actually goes. But it never feels like he's making an active choice to do the right thing, which would be to stay with his wife. He stays with his wife in a passive manner as a default. And I'm reminded of a Sondheim line, which is, the choice may have been mistaken, the choosing was not. And Archer never does any choosing, at least not actively. And by the end of the book, you have him having led a life that is respectable and full by the standards of his day, but also fundamentally missing something. And he's this mere gray speck of a man compared with the ruthless, magnificent fellow he had dreamed of being. The end of the book, I just think, is so beautifully written. And he is faced with Alenska in Paris in an apartment nearby. And he's lived so long with the choices that he made of not following her. And his imaginative version of her has been a companion throughout his life that he can't go up. He can't actually see her. And she's more real to him in his imagination than she would be in the flesh. And he has this fear of losing what Wharton calls the, the last shadow of reality. And so someone closes the shutters to her apartment and he walks away alone. And I guess what I love about this book is the way that it deals with internal life and questions of identity amid a broader environment of change. And what about a person is fixed? What relationships or what choices what past makes a person who he or she is. And that's something that all of the novels that we're going to talk about today wrestle with in ways that are very, very different, but each wonderful and illuminating and, and heartbreaking. I found it completely fascinating, this book. I really enjoyed it. The first 30, maybe even 40 pages, I found so off-putting. I thought, why on earth has Charlotte picked this novel? It's sort of sickly sweet. It's like being fed a meal of sort of marshmallow mixed with meringue. And, and then it dawns upon you at a certain point that it's meant to be that way and that our hero, Newland Archer, also finds the situation in which he's, you know, the world in which he's sort of created for himself and which he's in absolutely stifling and, and sickly. And it's suffused with this sort of elaborate snobbery of a kind that I found fascinating from a sociological perspective, that people get obsessed about the right kind of knife that you should use to slice a cucumber with. I, I learned that a silver knife was deemed proper in um, New York High Society in the 1870s. But then it, the novel really takes off and it's, it's wonderful as a sort of narrative story. There's this line that I found sort of helpful for framing that early part, which is, in reality, they all lived in a kind of hieroglyphic world where the real thing was never said or done or even thought, but only represented by a set of arbitrary signs. And so for a lot of the novel, Wharton, who clearly knew this world really well, it was the world she was raised in, you know, the early part of the novel is just kind of filled with that stuff. And it is absolutely suffocating. And, and then we get this story that you described, Charlotte. One of the things that I found most extraordinary about this, I hadn't read the novel before, is it's published in 1920. Now, this is after a lot of literary modernism has already 
got to work. And it reads really, at least the beginning bit, reads like a really sort of 19th century novel to me. So, so why do you think, Charlotte, first question to you, given it's your pick, why do you think she did it that way? What do you think she was trying to do? Yeah, I mean, people today write books about America from a few decades ago. So I don't think it's it, it feels weird in the moment, and particularly in the context of some of these other books that we're going to discuss. It feels like it's from another era. But to me, this book is about change that's underway in real time, but it's also just about the human condition and about agency and regret. And there are these fantastic sentences, I think, that are littered throughout. I mean, you had somebody who is a journalist not by choice, but who wanted to do something else. He wanted to write literary criticism, and she describes him as having the sterile bitterness of the still young man who has tried and given up. And it just is filled with that kind of thing. And I think as a chronicler of the human condition, it is about that particular time in New York, but it's also just about people and humans and feels timeless in its own way. Yeah, I agree with that. Fasman, we're delighted to have you on this episode, partly because it's always good to have you on back on the podcast, but also because you are a published novelist in addition to your other accomplishments. I'm sure you've read The Age of Innocence before. What did you make of it on rereading? I love this book, and I love that Charlotte chose it. I think the fact that she wrote it in 1920 is sort of central to understanding it. This book, there's a fundamental sort of calm and sympathy to it. She was looking back on the world of her childhood. It's a similar experience, I think, to reading Woodhouse or Forster, where they're looking back on a world that was completely destroyed by the First World War, right? All of the assumptions that had gone into making this old New York world were gone. And by the time she was writing it, she was looking back on it analytically as a novelist has to, but also with tremendous sympathy. And if you think of her as one of the premier novelists of class in America. It's really hard to write about class in America, but she did it really well. And if you think about her compared with, you know, the other ones that come to mind or her rough contemporary, William Dean Howells, and then mid-20th century novelists like Richard Marquand and James Gould Cousins, she really aged much better than they did because she wasn't defending the old order as they did against the upstarts, nor was she completely condemning it. She writes from this extraordinarily sort of balanced point of view where she could see everything that was wrong with that society and everything that had to change and everything that made it unlivable. And yet she doesn't condemn the inhabitants of it. She takes them on her own terms. And I think it's just a superbly humane novel. I read it, this is now I think the the fourth time I've read it. And each time I find something I hadn't found before, usually in one of the minor characters. But it's just a novel of extraordinary sort of empathy and humaneness. She's very kind to her characters, while also viewing them in their fullness and without sort of making them treacly. Idris, had you read it before? And what did you make of it? Um, I had not read it before. And it was nice to read it. It reminded me a bit of like uh, Jane Austen transported to America in, in her rendition and incredibly kind of detailed elaborations, not only of New York society, but of uh, interior decoration. I think she had some experience there. And so you get these rich, rich scenes about New York life. I wondered, though, about its w- whether or not it deserves the, the status of a great American novel. And I She's a chronicler of class in the Gilded Age, but only of one class, right? It is only New York society that she discusses. Race is entirely absent from this. And I think something about American novels that makes them uniquely 
why is it that there's a category of great American novels that we talk about and and try to categorize and and whatnot. But I think like one common attribute of them is an element of of striving. Neil and Archer doesn't strive, right? Maybe that's the point. Uh, Alenska is is the best drawn character of the lot. May Welland is an incredibly kind of flat character. She's not rendered in the sort of poetic and humane way that I think Newland and, and Alenska are. And her final trick that she plays to to keep Newland is you know reveals a cunning that I think is very common of, of the age and you feel the you know the kind of stifling sense that Newland must have felt. But I, I wondered about, you know, it's sort of general applicability to the American condition. I, I accept that it's a really good novel about the human condition, but I wondered about the American one. Isn't Olenska herself kind of a striver? I mean, one thing that you're right, I think it's a great point that that striving is one of the characteristics that makes a great American novel. But what she seems to have done in this point is, is separated the striving from the main character. You have Olenska, who is an arrivist and wants to get in, and Archer, who's a bit more passive, except in his interior life. Adris, I think you're absolutely right that there is something, if you're trying to define a distinct trait that makes a novel American, I'm not sure that this actually has it. I describe it as a great American novel, not the, because I think in the canon of books written by American authors, I think it is among the best. But it does lack some of the traits, and maybe we should list them. I'm not sure what else you would put in the, in the category. But Striving certainly would be one, class, race. I mean, you could develop a checklist for what makes a novel distinctly American and distinctly great. I think that's probably too narrow a lens through which to view all American books. But I agree with you on the underlying point that it does lack some of that. I mean, the way that she talks about class, I referenced one of them before, but it's always in passing and in contrast to the main characters, that the bosses and the immigrants are the people who are actually doing stuff, and these are the people who aren't. So one of the things that I actually think is so fascinating about it is its study of inaction, which is, by your definition, an inherently un-American trait. And before we move on, I think, do you guys buy that he's actually in love with Alinska? I just get the feeling that she's a vessel. Well, I mean, that's a different question. You can be in love with a vessel. Yeah, I think he is in love with her as he understands love. Or that's the only kind of means to rebellion that he has. Right. And to Charlotte's point, they have so few interactions. It's hard to believe he really knows the woman he's in love with that well. I found that aspect of the story very interesting also. It helps with having her dwell as a figment in his imagination, right? That it's there's a limit to how real the actual connection is. I told you this, Charlotte, but I think the movie In the Mood for Love reminded me quite a lot of, of this storyline. It's a really good movie that, uh, if you haven't seen, I think is really worth uh, worth the time. That's such a great connection. I think I was going to tout the, the Martin Scorsese movie of Age of Innocence, which I think is beautiful and underrated. But you're absolutely right. In the Mood for Love is this book's clear, clear filmic counterpart. I think that I have never seen Martin Scorsese's version, and I feel like there's something kind of painful in my mind about what it would be like. Like, I'm imagining Daniel Day-Lewis in a corner breathing deeply, and I find it sort of embarrassing. I went to see it in the cinema with my family when it came out, and it's gone down in sort of family law because it's hours long, and I complained noisily in the cinema <laughs> to the rest of my family about it the whole time the movie was on, which I feel bad about in retrospect. I greatly preferred the book. Maybe I should go back to the movie, but I don't see how you could do a book that is so much about interior life and sort of unsaid things in a satisfying way in a movie. There are lots of lingering shots of fabric. That's how he did it. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Right. I just can't handle it. <laughs> oh. 
We've had some really nice emails from our listeners ever since we said we were going to be doing the book club. And my favorite one that we had about The Age of Innocence came from David, who said, I'm so pleased you chose this masterpiece of American fiction. I'm very familiar with the book as I chose it as the basis for an opera I wrote for my dissertation and for my Doctor of Musical Arts degree. It's a wonderful story of suppressed desire and the social mores of New York in the late 19th century. In many ways, it reflects American society today with its fear of an outsider, in the case of the novel, the character of Elena Lenska, and how it seeks to banish this alien influence from its midst. So David, at least, thought there was a sort of eternal American theme in there. Charlotte, it was a great pick. Thank you very much. Next, Idris is going to take us to the American South, and we're going to move on about a decade But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you would take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. It'll give you full access to all of our journalism. And it's because of our subscribers that we can do all the reporting and writing and podcasting that we do here at The Economist. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes. And thank you, too, if you're thinking about it. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. Idris, we're going in chronological order. So next up is your pick, The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner, published in 1929. I'm going to ask you to summarize the plot. And, you know, my admiration for you knows no bounds. But this is a this is a tough one. How would you describe to people what this book is about? Well, the, the story itself is is pretty simple. It's the story of the Compson family in Mississippi in this fictional county. I think it's Yaknapatapa. I probably said it wrong, but that's the setting of many Faulkner novels. And it is told through the perspective of four members of that family. And it's about their gradual decline and fall over the course of three generations. It's a story that's a motif that's common. But what's so interesting and so kind of difficult, really, about the book is its form. And it's the fact that it's rendered in this fairly hard to decipher stream of consciousness. When I look at other people who were employing that technique at the time, you know, I find Joyce too uh, obscure for my taste. I like Wolf when, when she uses it. What I like about Faulkner is that I do actually feel, maybe this is because I've read it for the third time, I do actually feel like I am embedded in the psyches of the Compson family. And I think that, you know, Quentin Compson, who's the most articulate member of, of the group, trying to understand what's happening as his brain is literally shattering and before he commits suicide is one of the saddest places that you could be transported to in all of literature. And I think that the unbelievable cynicism and spleen that you experience inside of Jason Compson's head is, I think, the closest rendition to kind of human evil that you'll ever experience in human literature. And he manages to compress all of that into a relatively short amount of text. I also just, there's something that's so uh, moving to me about Faulkner's story, the fact that, you know, he was a guy from Mississippi who no one expected anything from, who managed to write you know, novels of such incredible beauty. He wrote As I Lay Dying, which if you liked The Sound and the Fury, I recommend that you read. He wrote that in about six weeks while he was working as a, a security guard for the University of Mississippi power plant. And it's just it's just remarkable that uh, human ingenuity can reside in, in the corners of America that it does. And so I adore not just this book, but almost every book of his that I've read. When we were deciding which novels to pick for this episode, Idris kept 
recommending trilogies and I banned him from having a trilogy because I thought that was too much homework for people over the course of the summer. So instead, he picked a novel that really needs to be read three times to be uh, properly appreciated. So he kind of got around the system. I mean, it's a fascinating book published 1929, as we said already. So only nine years after The Age of Innocence, but so different. Gone of a sort of linear narrative, single narrator, and gone is the sense that you kind of know where you are uh, all the time. At times, it's more like doing a jigsaw puzzle um, than than reading a linear narrative. And Faulkner himself, I think, described it as a real son of a bitch, but also the greatest novel he would he'd ever write. There's a color coded edition that makes it slightly easier to know who's speaking when. I found it so interesting. I had a bit of a fever when I read it, which sort of compounded the effect of slight disorientation, but made it very very powerful. He's got an extraordinary ear for how people talk, Faulkner, and you really feel like you're you're in his world. Uh, Fazman, are you a Faulkner fan? Did you enjoy this one? I enjoyed this one a lot. I actually read the edition I read in high school, and I hadn't read it since then, and this has all my high school notes in it. It was a much better book than I remember. But I think it does raise an interesting question, which is, first of all, I agree with Idris that this is the, this is the sort of best stream of consciousness work of fiction. Joyce is much too obscure. Wolf, I find a little thin. This just created extraordinarily deep, rich interior characters by using this technique. But the question is this. Are we talking about the great American novel that is a great novel that touches on American themes, whether that's race or class or striving? Or are we talking about the greatest work of literary fiction written by an American? Because I think those are two different things. I think The Sound of the Fury is certainly a candidate for the latter. Uh, So is a book that I was thinking of choosing for this episode, Blood Meridian, by Cormac McCarthy, who's a Faulkner disciple. And that book is similarly very difficult to read. The language is obscure. It takes tremendous attention. But to what extent are those two categories separate? My choice of Age of Innocence reflects that I think they are separate. I think this has more of the former than the Age of Innocence because it is so much about the decline of the South. But what interests me most about it is the relationships within a family. And so the Compson family has has four siblings in the generation that we're most concerned with, Benji, Jason, Quentin, and Caddy. The brothers all have chapters. Caddy, the sister, does not. But I think starting with Benji, who is intellectually disabled and the most difficult section to read, I think is both hard and extremely effective because in order to get through it, you do need to let things kind of wash over you. And he has a sensory experience that sends him to a different time within a paragraph, sometimes within a sentence. And so that as a reader, you're always sliding in time and experience. And it creates this sense of confusion, but also of tangled meaning that I think is inherent not just to Benji, but to everybody. Because this is about four siblings who are struggling to relate to each other and to the world. And there's this human act of trying to make sense of your past and how it relates to your present and trying to communicate and to connect. It's a deeply flawed and imperfect exercise. And the style in which Faulkner begins the book makes that evident in such a tangible way for a reader. And I think it's extremely effective and powerful. Faulkner himself wanted to use different colored inks in the original, but they couldn't figure it out with printing processes at the time. And then just a few years ago, I think it was John Wright, that they actually created a book with different colored type for Benji's section to make it more accessible. And I think that's kind of a mistake. I mean, I I get maybe why Faulkner did it, but also 
I'm sure that he edited that first section of the book because he couldn't have the different color-coded ink. So I kind of like having it just wash over you because it gets you to a different mode of thinking and experience very quickly as a reader that breaks you out of the myth that we all have very conventional and structured ways of communicating or thinking and to, I think, kind of a deeper reality. Our minds aren't all like Benji's, but there's some element of Benji in all of us. And I think that's very effectively done. There's some element of all of them in all of us, right? Like we all have sort of moments where we're angry and are Jason-like, and we all have moments when we're sort of stuck in a recursive obsession and are Quentin-like. He he gets us to see the characters from the inside out, which is extraordinary. I hope that none of us are much like Jason. He's so awful. I was struck, you know, Faulkner has so many disciples in American literature, but maybe it's a good segue to switch to Ellison himself, because he very much viewed Faulkner as uh, worthy of study, and they had a few direct interactions as well. I was in the back of my copy of Invisible Man, which we're going to speak about. I noted that there was a reference to some essays that Ellison had written on Faulkner, and the two of them exchanged some correspondence and I think met once or twice. So they're very much of a pair. Idris, to what extent do you think the difficulty of this novel and Faulkner's huge reputation are sort of go together, right? To some extent, this is a book that repays study, careful reading, rereading. You do have to be committed to put the time in. I think a couple of our listeners found it hard going. We had an email from one of them, Kate, who wrote, I was delighted to learn that Checks and Balance was hosting a book club and scampered out to my local library to pick up all the novels. I'm now halfway through Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. Stream of consciousness is not for the faint of heart. Um, yeah, I mean, I was barred from picking more than one book, but if I could, I, I might have suggested As I Lay Dying and Light in August as well. Um, as I Lay Dying has a similar approach in terms of its stream of consciousness, and Light in August has an unusual structure in its choice of basically two main characters, but is a lot more accessible. I think collectively they do illuminate the themes that Faulkner is obsessed with, the decline of the South. Uh, As I Lay Dying has a character that's much like Caddy in the form of Dewey Dell, who we actually do hear from in that case. And, you know, he has this... Ellison really admired Faulkner's ability to describe African-Americans in in an incredibly humane way, even though personally Faulkner's racial views weren't uh, particularly great. But he had something innate within him that allowed him, I think, to to sketch out the variety of human characters that one encountered in the South. And I think also demonstrated that there was brilliance in a place that, you know, America may not have expected it to be. He's always described as a Southern writer rather than a great American writer. Does that framing make sense to you guys? Or do you think that does him a bit of a disservice in some ways? I don't think those two categories are oppositional. He's a great Southern American writer. I don't, I don't see it as qualifying. It's just a another adjective. Yeah, I think in the same way that Flannery O'Connor and Robert Penn Warren and, and these people are, are thought of in that, in that way. Uh, I think Faulkner is in that canon. And I don't think it's seen as a lesser canon. Well, I really enjoyed The Sound and the Fury as well in a very different way to The Age of Innocence. I do think Idris is right. This is one that repays going back to and rereading. Okay, let's leave The Sound and the Fury there for now. We'll be back in a moment to hear John Fasman's pick. We'll move on another 20 years or so. Fasman, you picked Invisible Man by Ralph 
Ellison, which was published in 1952, so 23 years after The Sound and the Fury is published. Before we get to why you picked this particular novel, can you summarise it for us? Um, It's a long one, and it's made up of lots of scenes that are sort of connected but not in a sort of traditional narrative structure. So that's a hard task, almost as hard as Idris's task of trying to summarize The Sound and the Fury. I can try. I can try. I'm really glad, first of all, we're doing this after Faulkner, because as you guys pointed out, Faulkner was a huge influence on Ellison. And I think it's fair to say that what Ellison probably respected about him, liked about him, found resonant in him, is that he tried to do for Southern life what Ellison tried to do for African-American life, which is show it in all of its complexity, eschewing cartoonishness or, or facile political judgments. I hadn't read Invisible Man in about 20 years, and I'm glad to say that it not only held up, but it was a better and stranger novel than I remembered. And, you know, he often gets grouped in, Ellison often gets grouped in with Richard Wright and James Baldwin, both great mid-century African-American writers. That seems to me lazy and sort of demographic in its categorization. I think it belongs with Huck Finn, or The Adventures of Augie March by Saul Bellow. You know, it's an American picaresque in which a young outsider chases a convention, goes off into the world, and tries to find and make and define his place in the country. In this case, I'll give a brief plot summary, but the plot doesn't really matter. There's a first-person narrator. He's never named. He starts off as a student at an unnamed university in the South, and then after a misadventure there, he is sent up to New York, where he has another series of misadventures. He becomes a prominent public figure in the Brotherhood, which is supposed to be the American Communist Party, with which Ellison had a brief pre-war flirtation. He eventually runs afoul of both the Brotherhood and a black nationalist leader called Roz the Exhorter, who's modeled after Marcus Garvey. And then after a night of violence in Harlem, he ends up living by himself underground in a room illuminated by light bulbs. The plot, as I said, isn't all that important. It's a big shaggy dog, and it's really a vehicle for his musings about the world. And the title of the book implies the theme. It's the narrator struggles to be seen for who he is rather than who others want or expect him to be. As far as why I chose it, I suppose I did, first of all, because he's just an incredible imaginative novelist. When I said the book was strange, I meant that as a compliment. It's just full of incredibly vivid scenes with images and characters that just stick with you. I chose it secondarily because I think the central fact or tension or or issue or concern in American life has always been race. So to my mind, any candidate for a great American novel has to deal with it somehow. And I really like the way Ellison deals with it. This is not a protest novel. It's not a sort of shallow political novel. Ellison's view of America celebrates complexity. It celebrates argument. It celebrates sort of an expansive protean welcoming idea of American identity. And I don't want to quote from the book itself. I'll quote cheat a bit and quote from his introduction to this edition of the book where he read. He said, in writing this book, my task was one of revealing the human universals hidden within the plight of one who was both black and American as a way of dealing with the sheer rhetorical challenge involved in communicating across our barriers of race and religion, class, color, and region, Barriers that were designed and still function to prevent what would otherwise have been a more or less natural recognition of the reality of black and white fraternity. So it's that vision of America that's deeply embedded in his book that resonated with me most. So I am embarrassed to say I had never read Invisible Man, and I thought it was by far the closest claim of any of the books that we've chosen of being the great American novel. But it just is extraordinarily effective, I think, in 
portraying this turmoil of trying to sort out identity within a world that is extremely violent and trying to change the narrator's identity in different ways. And so it has this setup at the beginning where there is a battle royale. There are a group of uh, black teenagers who are brought to a club of white men and are subjected to all sorts of indignities. And you have the narrator there. He wants to be there to deliver a speech about his ideas for how black men and black people can advance in a sort of Booker T. Washington kind of way. And you have this chasm between what he wants to do internally and the real visceral physical horror of the activities that he faces. And so you have that at the beginning. But then he continues almost like a Candide-like character at the college where he goes to. And there's a reference to Candide where he talks about the college being the best of all possible worlds, but he quickly leaves there and is sent off to to New York. But there are all these people who try to shape him throughout his experience. So you have a donor who wants Black men to be an idealized version of themselves that validates the wealthy, good white man's identity. You have the members of the Communist Party who give him explicitly an entirely new name. People are always saying to him, forget this, forget that. He's subjected to electroshock therapy. There are all these different ways that other people try to impose uh, their version of what he should be on him. And then you have this internal life that is represented in such a vivid way and violent way. Like, his throat is always going dry. His insides always seem to be in kind of a state of riot. His stomach is aching, etc. And you have it escape in these moments where, I don't know if you guys were struck by the way that Ellison used laughter throughout the book. So, He'll have these involuntary outbursts of laughter that are not at all tied to mirth. They are tied with a guttural reaction to a situation that is horrible and absurd. And it's it's almost like Edith Wharton's blush, but in a very different way, something rising up out of someone in response to an external force. And I, I guess I was struck also just by the style. It was the most intense sensory novel I had read in such a long time. It almost reminded me of synesthesia, you know, when one sense is activated, like a vision, and then you see something and then another sense is activated. Um, you hear music when you see something. And there was all this blurring that happens throughout. There was one sentence I'm going to quote where Ellison describes the heat rays from the late afternoon sun arose from the gray concrete shimmering like the wary tones of a distant bugle blown up on still midnight air. I mean, the book is just filled with that kind of stuff. And so there's this really intense physical feeling that is tied to touch and vision and music. It almost feels like jazz at different points. I just found it to be a very, very intense sensory novel. And he's so lonely, the narrator. I mean, when he starts to have some human connection, he can never deal with it in a normal way. So he has a woman, Mary, in Harlem who takes him in. He can't say goodbye to her. He just leaves. At the end, it makes sense to me that he's distant and alone and literally removed from the world in a hole. And it's in that environment where he's totally separate that he himself is able to feel more in command of his identity and have a sense of who he actually is. And it's so tragic that the only way for him as a black man to be whole is to be removed because the world is not ready for him as a whole person. And I just thought it to be so powerful and fascinating. Uh, thank you, John, for suggesting it. 
I totally agree. I think it's a, a spectacular, spectacular novel, and I'm I'm somewhat jealous that that you nominated it first. I, I read it around the time that I read uh, Native Son by Richard Wright, and I think it's just a dramatically superior novel. I think that if you read James Baldwin's uh, critique of Native Son and and uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think it's called uh, Everyone's Protest Novel. It's an incredibly potent critique of of the character of Bigger Thomas. And I much prefer the the unnamed character in Invisible Man, who at the beginning is speaking from underground, a lot like, you know, Dostoevsky's narrator in, in, in Notes from Underground, and is describing this sort of remove that, that he's been forced into before you get into the life story, which, as Charlotte said, is is rendered in really beautiful prose, in addition to taking you through all of the conflict that was going on in in terms of sorting through America's racial history. I guess what Baldwin talks about is is the sense that even even when writing a protest novel, it's very easy to depict, you know, uh, every black character is kind of noble and heroic in in their own way and and to in the, in doing so kind of render them unhuman in a way. And I guess there's a richness in in how Ellison describes, you know, Bledsoe, who's this horrific you know tyrant within the uh within the college who says that um i would have every african-american in this country lynched rather than lose my position there are people like that right there are charlatans who take advantage and and there are very canny people who take advantage of the oppressive system that exists and do it to their own advantage i think that his rendition of the communist party and its awkward use of of african-americans uh not as people but as an instrument to foment the kind of race revolution and and further class revolution is an incredibly well uh, rendered um, uh, accounting of, of a problem that that's existed with this idea that there would be and you, and you see this right in terms of the flirtation that existed within radical black movements and and communism and marxism and you know that sets the stage for folks like angela davis and, and other folks i mean there's this real nexus that is really interesting to think through and that uh, you know you don't encounter with the same richness in in other novels about the period i i think it's i think it's absolutely spectacular um and i'm really glad that uh people have read it i think one thing that this book shares with the sound of the fury and with moby dick another great american novel is that they're all somewhat ruined by school by the need to go through reading them and pulling out themes and sort of ranking what's most important in the book rather than reading them all with this sense, as Charlotte put it, of sort of synesthetic pleasure. I mean, I think of that scene in the paint factory and you can, it's not just that he's describing the chaos and the noise and the smells and the being yelled at and the not knowing what to do. It's you're reading it and you actually feel anxious. I could feel myself sort of start to start to sweat. All three of these books, I think, have those moments of extraordinary intensity. Um, Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec said that Moby Dick was his favorite novel because there's no frou-frou symbolism or anything. (laughs) 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 Which is good. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) It's just a story about a man and a whale. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yep. It's, it's very good. A famous literary critic, that Ron Swanson. What do you make? I want to know what you guys make of the last sentence of Invisible Man. John Fasman, what's your sense of that meaning? Here's the last sentence. It doesn't spoil anything. Who knows but that on the lower frequencies, I speak for you. I think that gets back to what Ellison was trying to do, what he talked about in the introduction, which is to make his character black and American and universal. 
I hadn't read this one before either, and I really enjoyed it. I share the podcast view that it's superior to Native Son, which is a novel that it's often compared to. The opening with the brawl in which black boys are blindfolded and then made to fight each other almost to the death over money that turns out not to be money and then subjected to electric shocks is one of the most horrible things I've ever read. And for a while, I found it quite hard to get past that and continue. But it's well worth it if you do. There are so many extraordinary characters in this book. John Fasman, you described it as picaresque, and it does have a certain sort of Don Quixote quality to it. It feels like this narrator who, whose name we don't know is on a quest or a journey. And we're not quite sure what the object of it is, though it becomes clearer that it's sort of self-discovery in some sense. But that opening is really, really tough going. We had one email from a listener about this book, which delighted me. From comes from Ben. He wrote to us saying, Yesterday I was riding the train home and listening to the penultimate chapter of Invisible Man. I looked up and realized that another passenger in the same car was reading it, still quite near the beginning. I struck up a conversation, and because he mentioned that he found the reading a bit slow going, I enthusiastically recommended the audiobook narrated by Joe Morton to him as it's simply one of the best performances of a work of fiction I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. I like the idea that there might be this summer various people taking trains or lying on the beach reading these uh, novels and then discussing them with each other. I've like many, I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot for work and I always feel that there's some new subject that I need to learn about. So I read very few novels and it's been a huge pleasure over the past few weeks to immerse myself in these stories. And having a novel on the go, I think is one of the great pleasures in life, knowing it's there to get back to at, at the end of the day and you get to spend a bit of time in the company of these characters in, the, in their world. So thank you, all three of you, for your picks and for reading along. Okay, there will be the traditional quiz, but before we get there, just a quick fire round. All of the books that you guys picked were published a while ago. If you were going to pick something contemporary, a contemporary American novel uh, to recommend to our audience, perhaps for, for next summer, what would your pick be? My first nominee would have been Infinite Jest, but as that's a thousand pages, uh, we did not subject everyone to it. <laughs> we banned you from picking yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's absolutely astonishingly brilliant. But the problem with David Foster Wallace is he knows he's brilliant, so that can be a little hard to to get over. But um, but I I think it's magnificent. The Overstory by Richard Powers. I think he's a tremendous novelist, and that was his best work. I am going to not choose what is the best probably recent American novel, but I really enjoyed The Sun by Philip Meyer, which is a novel about Texas. I like novels that are about place. And I think that one is very effective. John, what would you have picked if you had to nominate a great American novel? I would have had a really hard time. I mean, having read what I've read now, I think I would have gone for Invisible Man. I recently reread All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, and that is an amazing book, sort of stylistically extraordinary. So uh, maybe that. But if I was being completely honest, my favorite comfort reading is American... Da Vinci Code? <laughs> da Vinci Code, no. is sort of hard-boiled American fiction from the kind of 30s, 40s, and 50s. I like James M. Cain a lot. So either The Postman Always Rings Twice or Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is a really, really good book. And I have a real soft spot for Raymond Chandler, who's somebody I go back to again and again. Many flaws as a writer, couldn't really do women, but so stylish. And if I had to pick one of those to start, it would maybe be The Lady in the Lake, but I love them all, really. I, it's funny. I read Chandler and Conan Doyle whenever I'm sick. Those are my comfort reads. 
Did you know William Faulkner helped write the screenplay for The Big Sleep? I did know that. And he also helped on To Have and Have Not, which is another great movie of the same era. Yeah. To Have and To Have Not is so good. There was a movie I saw when I was Googling something. There was a Sound and the Fury, the film that was made. Oh, boy. Which I don't even understand how that could have occurred. Which reminds me, when are we doing The Great American Movie? Yeah, we, I was just thinking we ought to have a movie episode at some point. Okay, maybe we should leave that there. But before you go, there is, of course, a quiz for you. This book club episode will be John Fasman's last on-air appearance before he goes off on a sabbatical. So, John, what are you going to be doing? We're going to miss you. I'm going to miss you guys a lot, too. Um, I am going back to school for a year. I got a fellowship from Columbia to basically do the first year of an MBA and take all the accounting and finance and management classes that I was too high-minded to take when I was a student. I can't wait. Um, that sounds great, but it's also nice to know you're not going to be far away. I'm not going anywhere. I'll be, I will look forward to seeing you whenever you guys are in town. So as you're not going to be subjected to a quiz for a while, this quiz is bespoke, oh, designed for you, and you are the only contestant. It's going to be a food-themed quiz, and Charlotte Idris and I have been allotted a question each. John, the Dutch cake, Olikoop, was the precursor of which classic American treat? The donut? Is the right answer, annoyingly. Um, the oily cake, or oily cake was first adapted by a New England cook in the 19th century who placed a walnut or hazelnut in the centre, hence dough-nut. Okay, you have one point. That's slightly disappointing. Idris, you're up next. So my question, one of Andrew Jackson's favourite dishes was leather britches. What goes into leather britches? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know. Is it like cooked down fruit of some kind? No, no, it's not. Uh, do you want another try since it's a hard question? <laughs> it's not a cow either. Oh, that's I was going to get softened beef jerky. Uh, leather britches. I don't know. I don't know. They are green beans that are preserved by being hung up and dried until they shrivel. Mm. and then cooked with meat, usually bacon. It was common in Appalachia in the 19th century when they didn't have very much else to do, I guess. I think that sounds delicious. Yeah, I bet that'd be pretty good, actually. Shriveled? Shriveled green beans? (laughs) Like dried green beans? I'm thinking almost like a shishito pepper except in bacon, which sounds good. Yeah, or like maybe pickled rather than shriveled, but I guess they're actually shriveled. Now it's a different ditch. Okay, my turn. (laughs) Which president introduced Meatless Tuesdays, a precursor of Meatless Mondays, to America? I don't know. That has a sort of hair-shirted Jimmy Carter sound to it. That's wrong. Do you want to try again? I don't know. Was it a depression thing? Was it, uh, was it Warren Harding? Almost every question, the answer is Warren Harding, so that's a good shout. I'm going to put you out of your misery. So it's kind of a trick question, actually. So Woodrow Wilson introduced the order in 1918 to ration food during the First World War. The head of his food administration at the time was Herbert Hoover. And to, quote, Hooverize became slang for being sparing with something. And there was a Valentine's Day poem to this effect from the time, which I'm now going to recite for you. I can hooverize on dinner and on lights and fuel too, but I'll never learn to hooverize when it comes to loving you, which is really the height of romance. Oh, that's very sweet. Yeah. 
Well, that's it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed reading along with us if you've been doing so. And if you haven't read the novels, I hope the podcast was interesting as well. Charlotte, Idris, John, thank you for your picks and your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next week's episode of Checks and Balance will be a more regular style episode. This one was produced by Harriet Noble. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can also get in touch with us via email. Let us know what you thought of this episode. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. The world is unpredictable, but it's also understandable. Economist Education offers a six-week online course on international relations. Designed by The Economist editors and invited experts, it gives you the knowledge and insight to navigate the rapidly changing worlds of geopolitics, business, and technology. And as a listener, enjoy a 15% discount with the code POLITICS. So sign up now at economist.com forward slash international relations. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.